pleasantly uh, surprised, kind of, I was tipped off by my grandma, but my uncle showed up today uh, to surprise me and uh, visit with us, and he brought me a gift that I want to show you because it's so awesome and unique. One thing that he has, uh, a skill that he's picked up in his retirement is uh, binding books, and so something he does for his pastor uh, where he goes to church uh, is something he has done for me for the second time now where he takes an entire sermon series that I've preached and he uh, puts it on paper and binds it together in a book and has gifted it to me. And this is, this is so, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that this will ever make the New York Times bestseller list or whatever, uh, but it, only one copy ever sold and it was free. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, I, I really appreciate this, Uncle Tony, so thank you. And this is the Hebrew series. It's so funny when I cracked open the first uh, chapter. Uh, it was when we were online. It says, oh, welcome to the journey online. <laughs> well, uh, it's like, uh, you know, you get to remember that nightmare of preaching to a camera by myself in a room. It's just me and, and Tony on the other side of the, the camera uh, recording there at the church office to put those on YouTube. Uh, and, and I became a YouTube sensation that year, right? We have, I think we, we're over, I think we have 130 subscribers to our church channel now. So when you serve in the nursery, you can go and catch back up on the sermon that you list, or missed. So, <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, we're going to pick back up in Galatians today, jumping back into chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. But the first verse that I want to read to you this morning to kind of get our hearts back in, in the, into Galatians and, and back into what we're talking about and what Paul's trying to do in, in this specific paragraph we're going to study, I want to start by reading to you a, a verse out of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, this is something that Jesus said, and it's a description of what it will feel like to follow him. Listen to this. He says in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to, to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus tells us straight up, when you follow me, when you follow after this path that I am trailblazing for you, it's going to feel like the path that's less traveled. It's going to feel like the path that's a little more difficult. So here's what that means. When you and I follow Jesus, when we walk through this narrow gate as he describes it, there's going to be this tendency to look at the other gate. There's going to be a tendency to look at the alternative. What if I don't walk this way? What's that like? And when we look at that alternative, it's going to feel like the wide gate. It's going to feel like that's the way most people are going. That's going to feel like that's the way, that's the path of least resistance. And that's going to feel attractive to us in some way. And so he wants us to know straight up, like when you're following after me, it's going to feel like the narrow path. It's going to feel like the more difficult way to walk. There's going to be more resistance there. And that is such important, important instruction to understand in your Christian walk. I never want to sell this way of life to anyone as the easy way. Jesus didn't ever put it that way. He wants us to know that there's times in this walk with me, you're going to feel intimidated. You're going to feel frustrated. You're going to feel insecure. You're going to feel tempted to, to turn back and go the direction which you came from, to revert back to who you once were, because that's going to make a lot of sense to you, to revert back to familiar ways, your old ways. But you're something new now, and it's going to be difficult. It's going to be different. I remember um, here just a couple of years ago, Amanda and I uh, t 
took a trip out west to Mount Zion National Park, and we began to hike some of those trails out there. We had an absolute blast, something her and I have never done in our entire marriage, but we were celebrating 20 years that year, and we wanted to do something we had never done before, so we went out west to, to, to walk some of these trails. And I, I had been out there with my dad when I was really young, but I didn't really have any strong memories of it. So we get out there, and the first trail we did is up to a place called Angel's Landing, which is basically a trail that I know some of you have also walked that is just walking up the side of a cliff. You're, you're going up all of these switchbacks back and forth, and you're just going higher and higher and higher. Now, normally, I'm not a fan of heights. I, I'm I normally, I mean, if, if I'm on my roof, I'm like, you know, flat as I can be, <laughs> like, I get nervous. But, but there was something about being at Mount Zion, hiking up the side of a cliff, and the higher I got, it didn't bother me at all. I was just so taken aback by all the beauty. And, and, and just, it was just amazing. The terrain is just so different from out here, and it's just, it's captivating. I, I didn't even notice I'm walking on a cliff that the, there's death right there. <laughs> like, it didn't even cross my mind. But as I'm walking up this trail, I immediately recognized that I was alone, <laughs> and my wife was no longer with me. I'm like, oh, where did she go? And I turned back, and, and I, I find Amanda about uh, 20 yards behind me doing this, you know, against the wall. Like, because, I mean, there's just a huge drop-off on this side, and you're just, she was just clinging to the side of the mountain, and she had this look of terror on her face. And so I'm like, oh, no, okay, maybe I should have taken her to the beach. <laughs> I go back, and I'm trying to reason with her. Like, you know, hey, we wanted an adventure, babe. We got the adventure. Here we go. We're going that way. I don't know what's around up there, but it looks beautiful. Let's go. Let's keep going. She's like, nope, I want to go back. I want to go this way because that way's down, and that way's safe, and I know what's that way. Let's just go that way. And I'm reasoning with her as best I can, like, hey, you're, you're okay. <laughs> you know, I'm doing one of those. And this little five-year-old walks by with his parents. I'm like, look, look, the little five-year-old's doing it. She's like, her, her parents are stupid. They shouldn't, be, they shouldn't let her up on this cliff. What are they thinking? You know, they're idiots. <laughs> and so she eventually got over her fear, and, and we got up there, and it was incredible, and we had an amazing time. But, man, when you're in that moment, when you're really thinking about turning back, it can be intense. And I really think that kind of captivates or captures what the Galatian church is going through. They're just kind of at this moment in which they've been walking this, this path that Jesus has trailblazed for them. He's, he, he, he is, they're following after him, picking up their cross and following after Jesus. But they've come to this point in which it's, it's just complicated. It's difficult the alternative, the wide gate, is looking really appealing. They want to go back to what's familiar to them. Because being, being a Christian is really hard, and following the gospel and trying to live it out, that can feel scary. It feels just so narrow. And on top of all that, these churches in Galatia that were having this moment of insecurity, they, had, they were surrounded by all of these false teachers that came in after Paul left. And they've been filling their minds with all sorts of false teaching. And so that is why Paul is writing this letter. I know that those false teachers have infiltrated your churches. I'm confronting you. And it gets intense, doesn't it? Get, I mean, you can just feel the rage at times when you're studying Galatians. You foolish Galatians. That's how he addresses them. Who has bewitched you? I mean, he's in their face. I mean, right out the gate. You can just tell he knows them. Right? He's got a lot of relational collateral that, with them that he can, he can get in their face. He can grab them by the, the shirt collar and, and, and shake them a little bit. What are you doing? What are you thinking? And then there's other times 
in the book of Galatians, in which he's very tender, he's very compassionate, he's appealing to them. We know each other. You know me. I know you. This is wrong. And he's very, very uh, compassionate and pastoral when he addresses them. That's the passage we're studying today. We're, we're going to study 8 through 20. And I just want to start by, to get into it, let's just read 8 through 11. And you're going to feel a little bit more of a, of a toned down uh, approach by Paul where he's, he's appealing to them because he knows them and he's appealing to them because they have this relationship and it's going to get more tender as we go. But let's just take 8 through 11 to get started. Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I, have made, I, I may have labored over you in vain. Now, the first thing Paul says to him in his appeal to them, do you remember where you came from? Do you remember who you used to be? Now remember, when he's addressing the people in Galatia, this is, a, this is several churches that he's writing to all at the same time. Most of the people there, some of the people there are Jews, and some of the people there are Jews that had, uh, uh, you know, ran there because they were being persecuted by Paul in the first place. We, discovered, we, we talked about that earlier in the series. But a lot of the people that are in these Galatian churches are Gentiles, and that's the, the word we know in Scripture that says, you're not ethnic Jew. You're anything but Jew. You're a Gentile. Most of them are, are Gentiles that grew up in a pagan culture, worshiping pagan false gods. They were enslaved to all of these religions that were worthless, doing all of this religious activity and rituals and ceremonies and rites that were, that were completely empty of meaning. They weren't gods at all. They were just a carved out idol from a piece of metal that someone found. It was just a tree stump dressed up to look nice. That's, how they, that's where they came from. That's who they were. So they were enslaved to this powerless religious system of false worship to false gods. But now, he says, but now, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved him, now you have come to know God. The actual one true God, you come to know him, but then he qualifies that even better than knowing who God is, you've been known by God. Don't miss that, that little nugget that you can so quickly scan past in that passage of scripture. There's knowing God, and then there's being known by God. Those are two different things. Don't miss that truth. Like, when it comes to your salvation... Knowing who God is is one thing. Lots of people know who God is. Even the demons know God, right? I mean, we know that in Scripture, right? But to be known by God in the salvific sense, that's all that matters. You've come to know God. Then he qualifies that statement by saying, or rather, to be known by God. So the Bible teaches that there's a lot of people in this world that claim to know God. All kinds of people claim to know God. But not everybody is known by God. There's a distinction there. You might remember something else that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that I started with that chapter for, with this sermon. But he also said, just a few verses later, on that day, speaking about the day of the Lord, 
Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of religious activity that we can participate in this world. A tremendous amount of things. But here's the real question. Are you known by God? Or are you just a religious person? Well, the message of the Bible teaches us that to be known by God is to be in Christ. That's something else Paul just hammers into our brains in the New Testament. If you have faith in Christ, you are known by God. How do I know God knows me? Do you have faith in Christ? If so, you are known by God. When you have faith in Christ, you have been brought into communion with with God in such a way that grace is your experience now. You've been brought into communion with God in such a way that the resources of God are your possession now. That's how, that's how it's described to us. I have an exercise for you. You know, occasionally I like to give a homework test, text. And that's so that you can, in your devotional time, maybe this afternoon or throughout the week, here's, here's the, the passage of Scripture I want you to write down and just read later today or before you go to bed or something. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. And just read the first 14 verses and count how many times Paul says, in Christ, in him, referring to Christ, or in the beloved, which is also in reference to Jesus, in Christ. It's addressed, as a matter of fact, that whole letter is addressed to those who are in Christ, those who have faith in Christ, those who are known by God. And what I want you to do is, as you're reading those 14 verses, every time you see in Christ, or in him, or in the beloved, circle it and see what's attached to it. And then you'll know what it means when you are in Christ. You'll know what you have when you are in Christ. If you can just look what's connected to each time that is mentioned. In Christ, being in Christ or in him, it means, here's one thing in verse 3 there in Ephesians chapter 1, every, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's your possession if you're in Christ. Verse 4, if you're in Christ, that means you have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Wrap your mind around that one. I'll let you know when I get there. I haven't yet, but it's, it's just too big of a truth to wrap your mind around. In verse 5 and 6, it says, if you're in Christ, you've been predestined for adoption. Right? You'll spend the rest of your life trying to wrap your mind around that, and so will I. In verse 7, if you are in Christ, then you have redemption. You have forgiveness. It's your possession. You're known by God. Verse 11, if you're in him, you have an eternal inheritance. It's yours. It's already yours right now if you're in Christ. Verse 13, if you're in him, in Jesus, then you are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of these things. The assurance that we are meant to feel in the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1 are just mind-blowing. But they are meant to give you security in your faith to give you assurance of what you have right now, what it means to be known by God, to be a son of God, as we are described in Galatians. Grace is our experience, and the resources of God are ours. What big truths. Those are the exact truths that the churches in Galatia, because they were falling victim to some of these false teachers, those are the truths that they were starting to walk away from. And so this is the urgency that Paul has. What are you turning away from this? 
These false, false teachers came in and said, well, actually, all of those things that Paul's talking about, if you really, really actually want that to be your experience, if you really, really want those to be your possession, you actually, you actually need to follow Jewish tradition. That was the false teaching. You actually need to follow the Jewish calendar. That's why he says you need to, you know, he's talking about those days and those months and those years, those seasons. You need to observe those days like a good Jew. You need to observe the Sabbath on a Saturday. You need to be like a good Jew and, and, and observe the Jewish calendar in those, in those months where we have the different festivals and you can participate in the kingdom of God. And then it will be your possession. You need to watch out for certain years. Some years are even more special than others. You need to follow, follow the Jewish customs and then you can have all those things that Paul says you'll have in Christ. Well, you can imagine how furious Paul is when he hears this and why this letter is so passionate. He's like, why would you turn back to that? Why would you turn back to that which cannot save? And, and this, this is the incredible thing that he says right here. He equates, he equates turning to the Jewish tradition to religious pagan worship in this moment. He's like, you, you know, you, you grew up as pagans worshiping these false gods. There wasn't any salvation there. It didn't exist there. Those things can't save you because they're not gods at all. But now you're turning back to the law for salvation? What have you, have you learned anything? There's no salvation in the law. The law was to condemn. The law is to tell us where we stand before God. No one's ever been saved by the law. You can't follow those traditions. So he's, he's, he's equating it to turning back to paganism, which is incredibly, incredibly offensive to any Jew that could have read this in the first century. They would have just been like, Paul, you've gone too far. You can't say that. But that's the extreme of this, this extreme uh, problem that exists here that he's trying to confront them about. You're going you're gonna to turn back to all these rituals and rites thinking you're going to get saved? You're not going to accomplish any more than if you were going back to that tree stump or that punk of metal over there. There's no salvation there. The only salvation anyone can have is, is through Christ. If you go back to just some religious activity, you're going to be slaves again. You were raised in slavery, now you're returning to slavery. What are you doing? Can you imagine for a moment if you actually knew someone you loved and they were a slave, how hard you would work to free them from slavery? And then can you imagine working day after day, year after year, and you finally got to experience their freedom from slavery? The jubilee that you would feel? The, the, the joy that you would, you would feel? The celebration that you would have? And then imagine, after all of that work and all of that time, the person you love who is freed from slavery, imagine if they turned right back around and submitted themselves back into slavery. How confused and disappointed would you be in that moment? Was all of this in vain? That's what Paul says. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Was it for nothing? You're just going to go back to where you started. You started with rituals, rites, and, and sacrifices that didn't provide your salvation. And now you're just going back to rituals, rites, and sacrifices that don't provide your salvation. What are you doing? And it's the same for us today. It's the same for us today. If you turn to this way of life as just an empty way to practice religion, if you, if you turn to this, 
uh, participating in the church today as a way of putting hope in, in some religious activity to tip the scales in your favor. That's not how this works. That does you no good. Your time here is useless. It's meaningless. This is about faith in another. But they were having a hard time having their faith in another. They just wanted to trust in themselves and what they can do. And they were getting scared as a result of it. And let me tell you, if you start to trust in yourself and what you can do and you trust in your works to make you right before God, you better be afraid. You're delusional if you think that's going to make you right with God. That's what the Bible says. That fear was getting to them. They were getting pushed back for following Jesus, for saying that he is enough. They were getting pushed back for claiming that it's Christ alone, through grace alone, that saves us. And they were tempted to stop trusting God and to start trusting in religious activity again because that was familiar. They knew how to do that. That must be what this is. Paul says, no. You're spiritually relapsing. You're heading in the wrong direction. You're backsliding. And you know that, I mean, it's the same for you and I. When, whenever we backslide, whenever we tend to go in the wrong direction, when we do an about face and go the, bad, go the wrong way, we always go back to familiar things. That's often what sin does. We, we, we go back to what made us comfortable. Well, following Christ makes you uncomfortable. And so when you, go in, when you start to revert back to who you were, you revert back to what's comfortable, to what you do know, and to, to what you know it is going to look like. And, and the results there are, are you already know what's going to happen. So we, we go back in that direction, even when it doesn't make any sense. And isn't it funny how when it's somebody else, it's so obvious what are you doing? When, you, when, you're looking on the, when you're on the outside looking in and you see someone just get relapse and backslide, it makes no sense. But when it's you, it's hard to see sometimes. I mean, that's why we need community, right? It's always easier to see from the outside looking in. Like when we read about the Israelites being released from slavery in Egypt, they're, they're wandering in the wilderness, and we're like, all right, yeah, they're, they're free. They're, they're free from slavery, and it's an amazing moment. But yet when they're in slavery, or I'm sorry, when they're in the freedom of the wilderness, and things get hard, things get complicated, they don't know what's going to happen next, what do they do? They start complaining, and they start saying, let's go back to Egypt. <laughs> like multiple times, the Israelites are like, let's go back to slavery. We know what's going to happen there for sure. At least we'll have food, kind of. They, go, they want to go back to slavery. And we're like, what in the How could they possibly think that? How could they possibly want to turn back and go back into that life? And yet, it's like looking in a mirror, isn't it? That's what we do. That's us. That's us. That's what we do. That's who we are. When we relapse into sin, when we turn back, we go back to what's familiar to us. So when Paul's writing this letter, it's not about winning the doctrinal argument for Paul. He'll win the argument, let me just tell you. But it's not about that. For Paul, this is about people gaining or losing freedom in Christ. And so he's, he's setting aside this works-based versus faith-based sal uh, salvation debate. He's setting it aside for a moment. He's going to appeal to them in a pastoral, loving, affectionate way because he has a history with them. Follow along with me in verse 12. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. He said, hey, 
become as I am. Paul wanted everybody to be a Christian like he was. That's what he was passionate about. That's why he did all of these missionary journeys. And whenever you study Paul in his missionary journeys, as we did in the book of Acts, one thing that stands out as he interacts with all of these different people, with all of these different backgrounds, he, he's a master at finding common ground. The way that he evangelizes to the community that he's evangelizing to differs from place to place because people are different place to place. Cultures are different from place to place. And so he takes a different approach with different people. He's trying to find that common ground, and he's a master at it. Like when he's around a Jew, he is as a Jew. That means he, he embraces Jewish culture, he embraces Jewish customs, he values Jewish people, and he does so in a way that doesn't compromise his Christian faith. He was a master at it. Yet at the same time, when he would go into a Gentile area, and a Gentile community with all sorts of pagans and or paganism and false gods and all of this activity, he is as a Gentile to the Gentiles. And that he finds that common ground, wherever it may be, they're all human, he's going to find that common ground in some way. And he embraces their culture and embraces those people and values them in such a way that doesn't compromise his Christian faith. That is such a lesson for you and I. Because isn't there a slippery slope there? It's so instructive to us, but there's so many dangers to it. I feel like we got two problems whenever we try to evangelize in our culture. Here's problem number one, is we got some Christians that create so much space between them and non-believers that they never have any contact with them in any meaningful way whatsoever. Well, good luck evangelizing to people that you never even value or talk to or have friendships with. That's not going to happen. And then the other side of that slope is you got some Christians that embrace the culture they're in so much that they're virtually indistinguishable from the people around them. They're no different they, they just give in to the, to the paganism. And they're no different than anyone else. Nobody can change as a result of hanging out with them because there's nothing different about them whatsoever. There's two slopes there. Paul, he, he just, he mastered it. We study his missionary journeys and what he says to certain people because it instructs us. Here's how you do it. And he's managed to evangelize to these Galatian churches, which is a combination of Jews and Gentiles, predominantly Gentile, and he's friends with them all. He would step into that situation and he would engage everyone. He would value everyone. He would find common ground with everyone. It didn't always work out great for Paul. We know that from his missionary journeys too. But he engaged them in a way that didn't compromise truth. That's rare. That's rare. Look at verses 13 and 14. This is what he says to those once pagans. You know it was because of my bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as, as Christ Jesus. He's like, man, here, here was the situation. He embraced those Jews and Gentiles there in such a way, found common ground with them in such a way, that it, it, they took care of him because he got sick. He hadn't shared the gospel with them yet. He was just friends with them first. He had engaged them on a level that they respected him and knew him. And it was because they took care of him in his ailment that he was able to preach the gospel to them. So here Paul is like, man, remember when we met? And I was all sick and down and out, and you guys just took me in. You didn't scorn me or despise me. You took care of me. Remember that? And that's what, that's what actually enabled me to preach the gospel to you in the first place. He's actually, he's celebrating some dark days. What a mature Christian. 
what a mature believer when you can actually celebrate bad times because you saw the work that God was doing during the bad times. He was able to find common ground there, and as a result, his physical needs were taken care of by those Gentiles, and they were able to hear the gospel and believe and have salvation in Christ. I mean, it's amazing. They embraced that truth early on, but something had changed. Read verses 15 and 16 along with me. It says, "What, what then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? It's like, man, in the beginning, you guys loved me. Even before I preached the gospel to you, you're taking care of me when I'm sick. I shared the gospel with you. You, be, you become believers. It, it was an incredible relationship that we had with each other. Like, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. A lot of people think that he had eye problems, and that's something that they were tr- helping him through at that time as a result of that. We don't know for sure, though. He's like, man, you would have given me the shirt off your back to help me in that situation. We were friends. You're going to tell me that I'm your enemy now, having taught you the same truth today that I taught you back then? What's changed? I'm not any different. I'm doing the same thing now that I did back then. My message hasn't changed. Why am I an enemy now? Why are you resisting this? Why is this a problem for you? Why now? I I can't even tell you how much this passage resonates with me as a preacher. I mean, just preaching the Bible, just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph. I can't even tell you how soothing. I mean, it's like so soothing to me to read that Paul had this experience. He's not doing anything different. His message hasn't changed. He's just teaching God's truth. And then for some reason, at some point, he's the enemy. I I can't even tell you how many times I've had that experience. I mean, I I teach the word of God. I come here and do the same thing every week. And let me tell you something about the word of God is that it covers a lot of subjects. It talks about a lot of stuff, a lot of hard truths in the Bible that make you really uncomfortable. makes me uncomfortable too. You mix that together with the fact that I have a flawed personality and I'm a fallen human being just like you. And what you get is uh, you interact with people that can be incredibly ungracious, incredibly, brutally ungracious. I have gone from friend to foe inadvertently in one sermon many times over as I've just preached through the Bible. It's a painful reality for any preacher who just preaches through the Bible. Because sometimes you're talking about stuff that people want to hear, and sometimes you're talking about stuff that people don't want to hear. And I, I, I always, I, I want you to know straight up, I, I love this church, and I love these people. And we have a lot of longevity here at The Journey, which says a lot about, I think, this church. And I love it. But there's only, you got to embrace two truths if you're ever going to last at The Journey. I'm not perfect, and the Bible talks about hard stuff that we can't fully wrap our minds around all the time. You gotta embrace those two truths. I'm not perfect and the Bible talks about hard stuff. If you can't embrace those two truths, you'll be shopping here for long. (laughs) Because one or the other, one of the other will rub you the wrong way. Either my imperfections or the Bible's hard truths. You have to be able to embrace it. I could change up my philosophy, you know. I could probably have a lot better success numerically could have a lot better success in making people feel great, 
Because sometimes, you know, you hear a passage of Scripture and you walk out of church and be like, man, I feel great, I'm energized. And sometimes you hear a passage of Scripture that you needed to hear just as bad, but you feel a little beat up. I feel like I've been punched to the gut. That wasn't fun. But it's a truth you may have needed to hear. I could change up my philosophy. I could make it all about making you feel good. And I could make it all about you liking me. And we could have a whole different feel here, right? And a lot of churches have embraced that philosophy. I had someone who just recently sent me um, a link to a, a church in their area and, and wanted me to check it out and just help discern what was happening there. And so uh, at their request, I, I sure, okay, I'll go and I'll listen to, a, watch a couple of services on there online and help you discern if this is a good or bad place to attend or whatever. And, and I mean, that church service that I, will remain unnamed, that church service, it was like totally dedicated to making you feel great about yourself. I mean, it was like, this is the church of self-esteem. And if you want more self-esteem, you need to come here. And they literally, for a half an hour of their service, a half an hour, they would have an open mic time in which you could come up and talk about the good deeds that you did that week. That was the purpose of it. It was to talk about, to brag about how great you are. I mean, literally, they came up to the microphone and was like, well, I blessed this person this week, and I did this. And, I, and, I, and then everybody's, "Woo! yeah, man, you're amazing, you're great. And then the next person comes up, talks about all the good things they did this week and how they had this huge impact on everybody around them and how great they were. And it was just person after person after person. And, and I was like, okay, well, are, are you going to accomplish anything else in this service? And then the, the pastor finally got up to preach, and he's like, okay, I'm not going to take much of your time. This is going to be short. This will be about 10 minutes. And he, he read a read a verse out of the Bible, out of Galatians, and, and talked for 10 minutes about how great they were. And I'm like, and, and that was that. And the church is booming. Just like, man, I guess we could change up our philosophy here. Uh, I could make you feel good, and I could just do whatever I could to make you like me. And here's what I would accomplish. If, if we changed up our philosophy and went that direction, I would shut you out of the kingdom of God instead of ushering you in and walking towards it. I would shut you out of the kingdom of God if we act like that. Take Paul's word for it. I'm just stealing his concept. Look at verses 17 and 18. They, speaking of those false teachers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. He's saying those false teachers in Galatia, they're just using you spiritually immature Gentiles to make much of themselves. They want it to be all about them, and the way that they are making it all about them is they are showering you with disingenuous, disingenuous flattery. They're trying to make you feel great about yourself, but it's really just about spotlighting them. You hit their, you've been bamboozled. And, and certainly, there are so many ministries and so many pastors today that are just falling victim to, them, to that. I think good pastors can even fall victim to that. Because let me, let me face it, let me, let me just tell you straight up, like, when people come to the journey and, 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 and they shower me with attention and praise, pastor, I've never been taught the Bible before like that. This is, this is, I, I, this is what I've been missing. That feels good. <laughs> I got to be careful with that. That's seductive. That, that feels good. I crave 
that attention. I crave that admiration just like any other fallen human being on the planet earth. So we have to be so careful with that. In ministry especially because if we get caught into that, it can become all about that. And me just putting you in a situation in which you shower me with compliments and things like that. And me just using you and buttering you up so that you can butter me up and <laughs> it can just be all about that. And if we did that, if we make it all about that, it will ensure we are shut out of the kingdom of God because that's not what church is about. That's not what church is about at all. Now, Paul does qualify that. He said, by all means, if they are actually speaking truth, which they're not, but if they are actually speaking truth, I'm not saying you can't praise them in a sense that they're doing something good like you do when I'm there because if it's good, it's good. He's not trying to steal all, like, hey, save all your accolades for me. Don't give any to them. He's saying if you're going to pass out accolades, make sure you're giving it to the person that's actually speaking truth and only that person. But you're being duped. You got these false teachers that are victimizing you, and they're victimizing you with this attention-grabbing, manipulative, self-absorbed, false teaching. That's, that's their MO. And as a result, you're all being enslaved to empty, legalistic religion, just like what you were raised in in paganism. Look at the agony Paul feels as, as a result of this in 19 and 20. My little children, that's how tender he is. My little children for whom I am again in, angu in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. He likens his struggle, his agony on their behalf and for them to a mother at childbirth. And it is the perfect connection to relay what he feels. Because we, we, we've witnessed childbirth. I know you have. And it's inconvenient from what I can tell. <laughs> it looks really inconvenient for you moms. There's a lot of pain. It's very emotional. It gets really tense. That's what childbirth looks like from what I observe. But the commitment to the child in that moment of childbirth is, is unparalleled in that moment. It's unparalleled in nature, right? I mean, re regardless, when, when a mom reaches that point of childbirth, there is no going back. It's this way or death. There's no other direction to go. I'm headed this way if it kills me. Because the commitment that the mother has to their child is, again, it's something that nothing else rivals in, in nature. Paul is pointing to that to say to these these Galatian brothers and sisters, listen to me, I'm not about to give up on you. We're going this way or dying. I'm not giving up on you. You might be confused right now. You might be scared right now. But I care about you way too much to turn back on you now. I'm committed to all of the pain that this direction has for us. I'm, for, I'm committed to all of the anguish. And this labor can take a while. But whatever the cost is, I'll pay it. Because I'm going to make sure you understand the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so those, those spirits, here, here, here's the beauty of it all. When you think about the narrow path that walking out your faith is, it's always that way. We have these young, immature, Gentile believers 
who are being duped by false teaching and they're, and they're being tempted to turn back and it feels like the narrow path and there's a struggle there. But then we see this old, seasoned veteran, this knowledgeable Christian beyond any knowledgeable Christian, you know, a veteran in the faith, and he's still on that narrow path. It's still agony. It's still anguish. It's still tempting. I bet at Paul's, at Paul's, you know, at that point in his life, at that vantage point, I still, I still just bet he looks at that other gate and looks at the alternative and thinks, man, it sure would be easier to go that way. It sure would be easier just to turn back around from here. There's so much resistance, but he's embraced the resistance. He's embraced the anguish and the pain and the narrowness of that path. And so he's teaching these, these younger Christians in Galatia, hey, this is the way it is. This is the way it feels. You know, isn't it amazing? We get to those difficult times, those intimidating times in life, and maybe you're there right now, and we think, this is awful. Do I, can I even do this anymore? Do I want to go this way? And yet when we still go the way of Christ in those moments in life, those moments are what serve as the proof that what we have is real. We need those dark days. We need those trials, or you won't even know if your faith is real or not. It's so often that we that security in our faith eludes us. It seems out of reach. It's the dark days, it's the difficult times that provides us with the assurance that we know what we have is true and real and a gift from God. He knows me because my faith is still here. It's still functioning because it's a gift from him. It isn't from me or of me at all. It's of God. Let's pray and we'll go into a time of communion. Lord, we thank you for these instructive passages of Scripture that help us to value difficult times, that help us to understand them, make sense of them, so that we can persevere in our faith. We thank you for the ways in which you used an ailment to even plant these churches. You used conflict to get the Jews there, and you used an ailment for Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles there. It's astounding, and it gives us hope, Lord, that as we, as we live out our lives in this fallen and broken world, there can be purpose in difficult times. And we can look back through those dark seasons and see where you have accomplished your will and expanded your kingdom despite us at times, Lord. And it's such an honor to be a part of your work in this world. Lord, for those that are here today and the, and the path is feeling narrow, it's feeling difficult, it's frustrating, and they're tempted, they're, they're frozen next to the cliff and thinking about going down, back from which they came. Lord, I pray that these words in, in Galatians chapter 4 would inspire them today, that it would lift them up, that it would encourage them, that it would help to strengthen them to boldly head towards uh, the beauty of, and the unknown in the path that you have before us. Uh, Lord, that we can be uh, in life with you eternally. We know as the end result. So Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for your word, and may we now be blessed in a time of communion with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.